Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It's your local community radio station. My name is Andy and I'm very excited to be joining you from the 4ZZZ studio. First time in about four months that I've actually made this show from the studio, but I hope you have been enjoying it from the various locations across uh, this wide country and sometimes across the seas. Um, that I've been sending it in from. Uh, today on the show, we are going to be marking an anniversary that happened this week. I'd say not an especially happy anniversary for many of us, but it is uh, 20 years this week since the US-led invasion of Iraq. Um, some of you... Maybe too young to remember, but many of you will remember the immense build-up, the threats of weapons of mass destruction that Saddam Hussein possessed, and um, it went for a long time, and not just the the kind of build-up for war and the warmongering around it, but the resistance to it, and there was incredible amount of resistance there was mass rallies, there was, you know, smaller acts of direct action, um, there were huge worldwide gatherings of people, and in the end, it was not enough to stop that war happening, despite the fact that as it came out not that long after the invasion, the weapons of mass destruction that had been the reason stated for the invasion did not exist, and in fact, were never likely to have existed. Uh, it was uh, quite a illuminating political moment for me. I was a teenager in a country town, and I guess um, we all knew that war was bad and that we didn't want war, and yet here we were um, walking into another one despite the fact that everybody seemed to be against it, you know. There was no shortage of experts to, against it, and, of course, um, massive protests. And the majority of Australians, both before and during the war, were always against the war, and yet uh, it happened anyway. And the reason it was quite a lesson to learn about our political system and the way that it works and the way, uh, I guess, Australia's uh, military policy is tied to the U.S., and it led me into a world, a life of activism, 
uh, much anti-war activism, actually. And so it had big impacts on my own life. It had big impacts certainly on the nation of Iraq, which has never really recovered. 20 years on, it is in chaos. I think they had a uh, finally a re- actual regime change this year after uh, elections being put off and delayed and not being able to form a majority. But, of course, they um, are in a state of lawlessness in much of the country and there's all kinds of different militia groups. Uh, There's still over 2,000 US troops in Iraq right now, 20 years on, because of the continuing uh, US fight against Islamic State and other groups like that. Um, I will actually be going to Iraq myself shortly. You'll hear some paradigm shift shows from Iraq, from the Kurdish region of Iraq. Um, But yeah, it's not a recommended tourist destination, that's for sure. Um, But uh, yes, so ongoing impacts there and ongoing impacts on the Australian radical uh, political community and the anti-war movement, certainly, as it sort of, it was a bit of a um, a wake-up, a reality shock that, you know, you could generate all this resistance and still not be able to stop a war. And so I think people had to go back and reassess how... Uh, they were doing radical politics and what we could do to um, try to create a more peaceful, more just world. So it is certainly a significant political moment of our generation and one worth remembering. The interviews I'm going to play today, I actually recorded them five years ago on the 15th anniversary, but I figure five years is... um, enough time that it's worth playing them again. I speak to Donna Mulhern, who went to Iraq um, in March 2003 as a human shield. Um, to There was a, a movement, as we all hear, of people from around the world who went to Iraq to try to protect key pieces of civilian infrastructure by placing themselves there, white Western people placing themselves in the way. So we'll hear from Donna about that. And we'll also hear from Dave Burgess, who did one of my all-time favourite political protest actions when he and his friend Will Saunders climbed the Sydney Opera House and painted No War in giant red letters just so everybody around the world could see that image and know that not all Australians were supportive of the invasion of Iraq. So we'll hear all about that action and we'll hear their reflections on, I guess, what happened um, to the anti-war movement after that. So plenty coming up. It's a packed show there um Long interviews, we've both got a lot to say, but I'm going to start off with a song from 2003. This is Le Tigre, featuring Kathleen Hanna, who's just been in the country. Uh, They recorded this song, New Kicks, with a lot of sampling of some of the mass protests against the Iraq war just before it started.
That is Le Tigre there, new kicks. Uh, all the audio there sampled from the massive marches against the Iraq war that I think they were in January of 2003, those ones. Um, and what an exciting kind of song it is, I guess, capturing all that energy. Unfortunately, the war still happened, but um, we did get a message in from Chris, Z subscriber, who uh, was recalling marching in Brisbane under the United Nations flag with Jim Sawley, Lord Mayor of Brisbane at the time, marching against the war. Um, uh, and <laughs> there were plenty of other things like that. I didn't go. I was in a small country town a long way from big protest marches. Unfortunately, I uh, would have loved to have gone, but I'm not sure my presence would have uh, been the thing that tipped the balance <laughs> and stopped the war. Um, we are talking about the um, history of the Iraq War. The, it is 20 years this week since it began with the US shock and awe campaign in the invasion. Uh, Donna Mulhern was there in Iraq at the time as a human shield. Let's have a listen to what Donna has to say. My name's Donna Mulhern. I live in the Blue Mountains. And the beginning of 
the Iraq War. You were in Iraq as a human shield. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I'd um, heard a call um, to go to Iraq um, as part of this movement. I heard the call uh, on the radio, uh, an interview with Ken O'Keefe, who was, I guess, the main founder. He was a former US Marine who'd fought in the first Gulf War in uh, 1991 and then became an anti-war advocate, as many uh, veterans do. And so Ken O'Keefe had an idea, and that was um, based on the premise. He said that it was okay for our governments and our media to support the war in Iraq because they talk about the people who live there, the Iraqis, uh, as though they are somehow different to us, you know, that they are Arabs, in inverted commas, and Muslims, and that was even worse, you know, not, not like us. And so if several thousand, thousand of them are killed in this campaign, then, well, that's, that's just what happens. That, that's collateral damage and that's just how it is. But Ken's idea was based on this premise and he said, what would happen then if we went there too? As in white people, Western, Western-educated, wealthy. What would happen if we went to Iraq and stood beside our Iraqi brothers and sisters and some of us were killed? What would happen then? So he had this idea to do just that. And, of course, the theory was that there would be outrage and because our lives were valued, we would be on the front pages of every newspaper and people might start to question the war. And so it was using our white privilege in a way, our Western privilege, in a very powerful way. And so he put out a call this day, I heard him on the radio, saying, so who wants to come? Who would like to join uh, this movement to go to Iraq and, and, you know, as a a sign of human solidarity with our Iraqi friends and and be there. And so as soon as I heard the call, I knew that I I had to go. And within two weeks, I was in Baghdad. Uh, Many other people around the world heard the call. We uh, had about probably 800 people from around the world gathered at various times over a six-week period. We were from uh, 25 different countries and aged from about uh, 19 to uh, 85. So that premise that it would create more media attention, more uh, critique of the war and maybe even stop a few places being bombed if there were white people there, did that ring true? Yes, yes. So Ken's idea was um, because our lives were valued uh, more than uh, Iraqi lives that we could use that power and be human shields. Uh, And so when we were in uh, Baghdad, we conferred with uh, Iraqis and determined uh, and listened to their views on what were the most important uh, sites that could be protected. And so in conjunction with them, we chose five different humanitarian sites uh, around Baghdad where the human shields went and we, we literally lived there. And, and so those sites were also chosen in collaboration with the United Nations Development Program. And all of the sites as well were sites that were either threatened or destroyed in the first Gulf War in 1991. So they were all very realistic targets. And so they were, for example, uh, power stations, water treatment plants, uh, food silo, communication centre, etc. And so we deployed to those sites and we wrote a letter to George Bush and the Pentagon and all of our governments and said, we are human shields, ordinary people from these various countries. If you bomb this site, you will kill us. And we sent that message out uh, loud and clear. And as a result, um, none of those sites were bombed while uh, human shields uh, were present. 
Uh, and many would say, and, and some cynics in the media say, well, they wouldn't have bombed those sites anyway. Well, we didn't want to take that risk because, as I mentioned, all those sites were bombed um, previously. Uh, and an example of the power of the mission was one uh, site at Al Mamun Communications Centre where we had a group of human shields present. It was a very important site to the Iraqis because it meant that they had telephone exchange. Uh, and even during the, the first week and a half of the war, they were able to phone uh, each other and families are able to phone ambulances and the hospital, etc. And so it was very important. And about a week and a half into the war, some of the human shields had to leave that site and there was one woman left on her own and uh, she wanted to stay but we pulled her out so she wasn't there alone. Uh, it was probably within eight hours of her evacuation out of that site the place was blown to pieces and we regretted that we weren't able to stay there longer but the Iraqi people saw it the other day, they, other way they said we can't believe that it lasted so long. They said because that exact site in 1991 was bombed within the first 24 hours because it was site of such uh, significance and importance. And so, as far as all the other sites, so human shares were able to stay at all the other sites during the uh, duration of the aerial bombing campaign, and all of those sites were protected, and uh, no human uh, shields were killed or injured. Of course, we also had other um, tasks and missions that we felt uh, while we were there that were also very important. And one of them, of course, was just to be there and bear witness so myself, I'm a former journalist, and so I was able to document everything I saw. I uh, took a lot of photos, and I wrote profusely, and and um, did hundreds, literally, of interviews um, with Australian media and around the world, and so did many of my other Human Shield colleagues. We were there on the ground, and we were not... Uh, we didn't have a filter. We didn't have any censoring, and we were able just to tell the story, to bear witness report what we saw, take photos, and then spread the word back to our friends and others uh, around the world. So that was also a very important uh, job. The other thing, of course, was just to give a message to the Iraqi people that they weren't alone, that we were there in solidarity with them, and we were able to send messages of peace from, uh, from our friends back home. That fact of being there, given that the war was such a constructed media event and embedded journalists and things like this... Uh, you got to see something that the rest of the world probably didn't get to see uh, in Iraq. And was your view of what was going on there, how did it correlate with what was the main portrayal in the Western world of Iraq? There's a, a few points I could touch on there, but one of the first things I, I noticed was when I arrived in Iraq and got to know what the Iraqi culture and people were like. And it was, um, I must admit, I was a bit embarrassed about how little I knew about Iraqi um, culture and the population. And so that was the first thing, um, getting to know this community that were very highly educated, very sophisticated, cosmopolitan, highly artistic, very, very clever, uh, very funny, and very secular. And just to get to know them and how much we had in common, that was the first thing that I wish was getting through the media. It really wasn't. And so that was the first message I tried to get out um, back home was if only you knew how much we had in common with these people and how similar to us they are and how we, we really just need to get to know them. So that was just the first thing, uh, how, how little we really knew about this so-called enemy of ours. 
and then during the war, of course, there was lots of... I didn't know what was being covered back at home. I didn't know what the Australian public and public around the world were seeing. But I had a feeling they probably weren't seeing the sort of injuries I saw. For example, we visited hospitals whenever uh, we uh, could, we, whenever we could get around the city and move with safety. I visited um, sites where missiles had, had just struck, like uh, Ashwala Marketplace where there was um, 13 people had been uh, killed just a few hours before. That was um, significant as well because it turned out that the missile that went off course and it was admitted finally that the US said that was a mistake, uh, the, the information was in incorrect. Uh, I later learned that the information and the coordinates for that missile actually came from Pine Gap. So that's very much an Australian connection. Uh, that wouldn't have been reported at the time. And just the, the level of civilian uh, loss and death, I don't know that that got through. Um, and also this thing they called precision bombing. That really got me because they, they thought it was fantastic and the commentators thought it was wonderful, this thing they called precision bombing, that it was so great that the bomb actually hit the target that it was intended to hit. And everyone thought that was just such a remarkable achievement that it hit the right building. Well, maybe it did hit the right building, but what they, they didn't tell the story of what happened in the neighbourhood around that building. Um, Baghdad's very much a residential city, uh, like Sydney, like most Australian cities, people living in the heart of the city. And so within a 10-kilometre radius of any of these missile strikes, it would have been like a, a huge earthquake, you know, when, you know, 10 or 12 on the Richter scale. And so a lot of, there were a lot of deaths and civilian deaths and injuries of people who were just in their apartments hiding with their windows taped because the windows would have imploded at such a velocity the glass would have just embedded into people's bodies and so a lot of the injuries i saw on the hospital were limbs that had been amputated cut and sliced through from glass from the veloc air velocity that had come from missile a missile strike you know five blocks away so this precision bombing was really quite deadly and it affected children i noticed um, at a very high rate I guess the kids couldn't run or take cover as, as quickly as adults and often they they suffered. So that was a, another question I had about the media coverage and also uh, the final one would have been um, the famous, um, infamous event of when the, the statue was pulled down uh, in the centre of Baghdad by the US um, Marines. That was quite remarkable when I got back home and saw how and heard how it was covered because um, when it happened in, in Iraq, it was certainly a different event. There was hardly anyone on the street. There was just a small group of people that had been shipped in on the back of a couple of trucks and told to go to pull the statue down. It was right out front of the Palestine Hotel, which was conveniently where all the journalists were staying. There were actually more journalists there than people, uh, ordinary people. And it was just completely 100% uh, stage-managed, what we would call a rent-a-crowd. And most of what happened, uh, according to CNN and the others, uh, on that day actually didn't happen. Um, we would call it framing, where you um, have a very close-up shot of something that's going on, which might tell one story, but if you just widen the shot and have a broader view, then it tells a completely different story. And I'm afraid my friends in Australia and the US didn't see the, the wide shot. And, and that, that's a big shame. But now we, we can look back now, 15 years on, uh, and, and even within just a, a year or two of that, people were already starting to reflect on that particular event and the mani media manipulation that went on on that day.
a bit of local uh, Brisbane punk rock from the early days of the Iraq war there. That is Bad Day Down with Happy Iraqis and Michael Jackson. Before uh, Bad Day Down, we were just speaking with Donna Mulhern, who was in Iraq 20 years ago when the bombing began. Um, and when George W. Bush declared victory a few weeks into a war that would go on to last almost a decade and, of course, then restart. U.S. troops are still in Iraq now, um, but uh, media at the time reported it all happily as Bad Day Down mentioned there. Of course, uh, another Brisbane punk band, The Disables, um, got number one in the Triple Z Hot 100 that year with an anti-Iraq war song, The Lackey Country, as well. So there was plenty of uh, musical resistance here in Brisbane. And let's go back to hearing from Donna about what it was like being in Iraq at the time. Besides the fact the, you know, incredible, the shock and awe campaign and everything, the beginning of the Iraq war was a significant moment for the peace movement. I mean, the human shields were a a significant movement, the mass marches around the world. Um, Considering the fact that US troops have been in Iraq most of the time since then, and as of late last year, Mosul is looking much like Baghdad did back then, a a city in rubble. I mean, what's changed between the initial energy for that and, you know, the reality of Iraq now? Look, I'm not not really sure. Uh, Just a a couple of thoughts, maybe, that there's a kind of a fatigue set in and perhaps also the peace movement. I don't know if the peace movement ever got over the fact that many within the peace movement um, declared that that the peace movement failed um, to stop the war. I guess it was a debate within the movement. Did we, you know, did the peace movement fail because the war went ahead and it was the disaster that everybody thought it would be and worse? So all of those marches didn't actually manage to stop the war. So I think many people became very disillusioned by the fact that it was one of the strongest movements historically, uh, anti-war movements, and yet it, it didn't achieve its goal. Um, technically speaking, so I think I think that put a little a lot of people off and just became disillusioned and and depressed by that. So maybe that affected the energy levels. I'm sure that it did affect the energy levels. Um, maybe people within the peace movement felt that then there, there wasn't uh, much of a role to play because it, you know, it was happening and the, they felt that there wasn't much that they could do about it. You know, I was able to witness a lot of people in the peace movement actually refocus their energies into doing a lot of great humanitarian and human rights work. Certainly I was involved in that on the ground in Iraq when I returned. I've had five trips back to Iraq since the first one and uh, worked with many people on the ground who were with me on, the first, on my first trip uh, as a human shield. So we all kind of refocused our energies and thought, OK, well, this is happening now. We, we still have to keep watch. We still have to bear witness. And, and for many years later, uh, the role of bearing witness in terms of independent foreigners on the ground was probably more important than ever. Uh, and so we continued to do that. So uh, where some people maybe in the peace movement felt a new role that they could take on, a new angle they could take, a new work they could do, uh, but maybe others felt that there wasn't um, kind of a role for them now. But I think... Human rights monitoring and accountability is certainly one thing that's very, very important at the moment. Uh, Fifteen years on, we can look back and um, really look at the evidence 
observe uh, what's happened and I think now we're moving into the phase of um, accountability and um, putting together some cases, cases of war crimes against particular people. So hopefully the, the peace movement, and I know there's many groups in Europe in particular who are working on such things, uh, gathering evidence and um, documenting what's happened over the last 15 years. So that's all really valuable work uh, that the peace movement can, can be involved in. Thanks, Don. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Oh, just that I'd, I'd, I'd love for people to, to continue to think about the legacy of the Iraq War in terms of um, Australia's involvement. I'm, I'm part of a, a group. We started off focusing on calling for an inquiry into Australia's involvement in the war in Iraq. We are calling for an Iraq War inquiry. How did it happen that we were able to go to war with a country of which we had no conflict with? It was a captain's pick. You know, John Howard basically made the call. It was never debated on the floor of Australia's parliament. And I, I don't know that many Australians realise that we are one of the very few um, democracies in the world where we're able to go into a war without a debate in our parliament. Like, even in the US, they had a debate in the parliament. In the UK, they had a debate in parliament, but not in a, a Australia. And so now we're, we're still working on um, on that issue and i'm part of this group it's renamed the war powers reform and so basically urging um, the government the media commentators to have a discussion an open discussion out there to talk about uh, changes that are needed in case that we find ourselves in this position again where the the leader or a cabinet of a country wants to take us to war and yet the everyday citizen and their representatives, the members, their members of parliament, have no say in that. So I think that's a really important um, conversation and um, hopefully 15 years on we can reflect on that as well. But the only other thing I'd say is, unfortunately, those of us who marched and, and took action against the war in Iraq uh, in 2003, we had grave, grave fears of what might happen as a result of that invasion. Now, I don't know that any of us could have imagined how catastrophic it has been for that country of Iraq. The invasion in 2003 has uh, not only created such um, chaos for, for the country in terms of uh, humanitarian disaster, in terms of being in a state of anarchy, but also a direct uh, connection to the, to the rise uh, of uh, Islamic, the Islamic State group. And it is a direct lineage from the invasion in 2003 to the rise of Islamic State. And that's horrifying to think that, that that could have been avoided. So I think 15 years on, it's a very dark and sad uh, reflection that we have when we look back. And, um, yeah, hopefully we can uh, learn from history this time. The number of foreign peace activists in Iraq is now heading into the thousands. Still, in this potential theatre of war, the theatre of peace.
That is Combat Wombat there with Human Shields uh, dating from 20 years ago when the Iraq war started and people like Donna Mulhern, who you heard just before that song, were uh, making their way to Iraq to try to get between uh, innocent Iraqi people and the bombs that were falling from our government along with the UK and the US. You're listening to Paradigm Shift. We're looking back at the beginning of the Iraq War 20 years ago and one of the most memorable actions, one of my all-time favourite protest actions was Dave Burgess and Will Saunders climbing the Sydney Opera House. As it turned out, they didn't know it at the time, but as it turned out, two days before the invasion of Iraq began to paint no war in giant red letters and send an unmistakable message to the world um, about Australians, uh, whether Australians were supporting this war. I spoke to Dave Burgess. Again, uh, I actually did this interview five years ago on the 15th anniversary, but let's play it again. Uh, David Burgess, Opera House uh, painter from 2003. It is not the only political action you've done over the years, but it certainly is one of the most memorable and iconic that you've done, and it was 15 years ago this month. Can you tell us a bit about what was the context of Painting No War on the Opera House and uh, the motivation for it? Sure. It was, uh, yeah, it was early 2003, all through the latter part of 2002, George Bush uh, and the US war machine had been building up in the Middle East. Uh, and of course, the Blair and Howard government here in Australia had been uh, echoing messages of support for invading Iraq on the basis of weapons of mass destruction. Now, we all know the, the history of where that went, uh, but as Christmas of that year came and went, and we got into 2003, uh, it was very clear that Bush was determined to go to war and uh, his lackeys were determined to follow him. Public resistance was was building and, and opposition was enormous. Uh, it seemed quite like a, a galvanising moment in terms of uh, community opposition to, to a war. We all know the worldwide marches took place on February the 15th, which were, you know, the biggest protests certainly Sydney and many other cities around the world had seen. And it took place in, in that atmosphere of, of desperation. Uh, Bush had given Saddam his ultimatum, and over the weeks that uh, led up to that, the, the two or three weeks, my friend Will, Will Saunders, uh, a British astrophysicist working... Uh, on joint projects for the Australian and British governments, said he had a bucket of paint, what should we do with it? So it all took place in, in that kind of political and uh, social atmosphere. So you had uh, a bucket of paint, a couple of rollers. Did it qu- require much kind of preparation work, staking out the Opera House, uh, climbing practice, anything like that? Um, it did. We all wanted to paint a message on some back wall in in a city new town or something and i sort of gently questioned him about what good would that do in a in a suburb where political graffiti is part of the course and he said well where would the most effective place to put it be and sort of hypothetically i said the sydney opera house and 
almost to my horror, he took me seriously and kept pestering me about it. And once he convinced me that we were both capable of doing it, it, it did take a couple of weeks to uh, actually get a bit of extra paint and work out safety options with footwear and what we were going to write and, uh, yeah, how to get up there safely. So you're a forest activist. You would have done lots of rope climbing in trees and things like that. But the Opera House itself, you free climbed. Is that right? That is true. Um, there, there was actually no way to attach a rope and uh, get up there in time. So, so yeah, it was a free climb. So I, I did spend a, a couple of lunchtimes sitting down the bottom just trying to get comfortable with each point of the climb. Also realising I'd have a backpack full of paint and uh, various bits of necessary equipment. Um, was it a hair-raising climb at all? It was. There, there was a, a point at which uh, the camber of the opera house, you know, that, that goes up at about 45 to 50, 55 degrees. But it also, at one point, it drops sharply off to the right, as, as, that, uh, as I'd noticed. So I realised that point, which is about 15 metres of the, the 67 that is tall, uh, it would be the hairiest, and it turned out to be so. Um, although I had pre-thought about what I'd do, uh, so made it quite significantly slower than Will did, who just seemed to run up. And once up there, um, I assume there is some access onto those sails. What did you do about that? Did you have to block that access? Well, funnily enough, I... I figured there'd be trapdoors or sliding hatchways, as it turned out. So I did have four lengths of padlock and chain with which to seal the hatchways. And when we got given our stuff back after being arrested, uh, the padlock and chain came with it. And no mention was ever made that the police were locked out until we finished the job. Um, maybe they they were too embarrassed to, about being outwitted like that. It did seem really odd because <laughs> the more it uh, didn't get mentioned, the more I kept mentioning it in various interviews and um, it just got put to one side. So that was rather strange because you would have thought that would have formed part of the evidence. Mm. But yeah, so they kept the pot and uh, backpacks and, and things like that, but uh, didn't want to know about the padlock and chain, but that, that's actually how we managed to get the message finished and ended up just undoing the padlock and chains and letting them out. And so the message you got it painted completely, uh, huge letters on one of those sails, um, but then I assume you were taken to the watch house and you probably didn't get much chance to, to savour your work before they started painting over it. Did you get much of a chance to go back and look at it? Um, we, we, we weren't allowed back. We were given bail conditions to get out of the CBD immediately. Um, but we you know, did walk out of the station door at the rocks, which is right opposite the opera house. So we did see it uh, there. And we also, I managed to squeeze a look through a slight uh, tear in the canopy of the paddy wagon and uh, was able to tell Will that looked pretty stunning. It was it was one thing to envisage it, but to actually see what we'd done... Uh, I mean, it was a strange mood. It was a, a very sombre 
build up to war mood. So it wasn't like there was, was great fist pumping and pulling off a, a bit of graffiti, but uh, I was quite happy with how that message sort of looked and comfortable that I'd done it and would have to face the consequences, I guess. Mm. So speaking of consequences, um, there was a bit of a, a fallout um, for you, a large amount of restitution you had to pay, and in the end, prison, is that right? Yeah, there was nine months of weekend detention, which is uh, a now abandoned program, main, mainly abandoned because it doesn't work. Uh, so basically you just had to turn up on a Friday night and hand your freedom over and get it back on Sunday afternoon. So there were... I think 41 or 42 weekends of that. And then there was the small amount of uh, $151,000 in compensation to the Opera House for the clean-up bill. It was initially listed at 166000 until we pointed out to the Opera House that they'd charged us GST when, being a government building, they don't pay GST, and that was quickly struck off. Uh, well spotted. <laughs> And there was a big fundraising movement to help pay for that, wasn't there? There was, and uh, it, it was quite probably the most incredible part of it was that people were willing to raise that much money. It was it was a huge amount, and the the physical help we got from you know people who who dedicated their time to organizing events and and uh administering it all through a trust fund from you know people donating their their five dollars right through to some rather large donations we quickly figured out that uh, there were a lot of souvenirs to sample from the the tourist shops with opera houses like snow domes and fridge magnets so we decided to graffiti those, and anyone who wanted to make a donation of a recommended size got a, a certain souvenir with extra graffiti on it in response. Um, one of Will's colleagues uh, in the science world worked out how to break into snow domes without uh, breaking them. So we, we managed to make a few uh, snow globes, and they proved very popular, even more so when... Uh, the Daily Telegraph decided to run a, an article with a big picture of one condemning us for the practice. We tripled our sales after that. But it took about two years to to get over the line and in the end we we uh, had a bit left over which we, we sent to a hospital in, in Iraq for repair work after the, the damage the war had caused. Through your streets, where all your monies are in, where all your buildings crying and clueless neckties working, involving fake long houses, housing all your fears, desensitized by TV, overbearing advertising, God of consumerism, and all your crooked pictures looking good, mirrorism, filtering information for the public eye, designed for profiteering, your neighbor, what a guy. Kill the God your child has born. Oh. 
violations, unnecessary death, matador corporations, puppeting your frustrations with a blinded flag. Manufacturing consent is the name of the game. The bottom line is money, nobody gives a fuck. 4,000 hungry children leave us per hour from starvation while billions are spent on bombs. That is System of a Down, one of many high-profile musicians and bands who recorded uh, anti-Iraq war songs in 2003. That one had a film clip directed by Michael Moore, who was at the time a very high-profile filmmaker as well. Um, We have been talking about 20 years ago this month, the invasion of Iraq and the resistance to it. Before that song, I was chatting with Dave Burgess, who climbed to the top of the Sydney Opera House and painted No War in giant letters. If you've never seen the picture, go and look it up now on your phone. I know you've got it. Um, Let's go back to hearing from Dave. So there was a big fallout for you, I guess, in, you know, that kind of fundraising effort and weekend detention. But often when people talk about, I guess, anti-war resistance in Australia, and especially in the last couple of decades, a lot of people say that the immense amount of effort uh, and energy that went into the protests against the Iraq war only for the Australian and the US governments to go in there and fight anyway was something that really uh, took the wind out of the the peace movement. Um, Is that your experience? Um, I'd be lying if I said a total yes and a total no. I took part in a documentary that uh, took a number of years to make uh, across a number of countries that really did focus on that very question. Um, and it sort of headed towards the Arab Spring as being sort of evidence that those protests did have some effect in terms of people power on the streets. Although when you look at, you know, the, the yet-to-be-played-out results of that, it's very hard to describe that as overwhelmingly uh, successful. And yes, at at the time, um, certainly on the day when a a million people marched in Sydney, the the question in all our heads, I think, at the end of that rally was that this was so huge, what is John Howard going to do now? And I guess the the war machine responded with, with its full might and the message was, but it is futile to go and protest. But at the same time, the people are still talking about it and the ramifications of that uh, that war. And I, I don't think the opposition was in vain in terms of the way that Bush, Blair, Howard, 
the Rumsfelds and the Cheneys of this world are remembered. I, I think that's very much in the mainstream consciousness that there's unfinished business in in terms of uh, repercussions. Do you feel like for uh, yourself as somebody who had taken a very dramatic step, was there anywhere to go then after, you know, that was all dealt with and the war was ongoing and as it sort of has been most of the time since then, did you feel like there was anywhere else for you to go personally in your resistance to it? Um, it, it was very difficult. Um, it's funny now because I live in a part of Sydney where you, you see the ramifications of it in terms of uh, resettled Iraqis and uh, indeed Syrians. Uh, there's, there's big populations here. Um and the the trauma is visible all around. So personally, looking at it, I certainly wouldn't uh, be very sensible to do the same thing again. I, I don't regret doing it once. And uh, you know, the I, I think times have changed. They they've made it harder to to be active. Uh, social media has certainly changed the way that activism is conducted. But I'd always like to think I'm I'm willing to stand up in the face of an illegal war. And it has been 15 years. It was two days after your you painted the opera house there that the uh, the first bombs U.S. bombs fell on Iraq. Um, and that war, I mean, Mosul is in rubble now, like Baghdad was back then, and um, and so we still see this kind of ongoing war. Do you have any hope from that movement and do you see how it can still make a move for peace in the world in the face of a a war that's been so ongoing and so tragic? It's certainly uh, been a lot to take in, I I think, for the peace movement in general worldwide and people are still examining that to this day. Uh, As part of that film... Uh, documentary that I was involved in. I met an Iraq veteran uh, from Chicago who had a lot to say about the peace movement and where where he he resisted the war in the end. He refused to do his third tour. Um, And he really advocates getting back to the community and your community groups and going grassroots up. And, And I could only support that sentiment. Obviously, it's, it's not a time to sit back and do nothing now. Um, we've, we're faced with a barrage of problems that seem to be converging and there's, there's numerous problems in the world. We, we've all seen what's happened with Iraq and Syria and, you know, there's no doubt the Iraq war in 2003 has led to the, the outcomes still unfolding that we're seeing there. I think it's important to to always raise a voice of consciousness. Um, but uh, as we've all seen in Australia at the moment, there's attacks that we've been called out by the UN for our own attacks on, on human rights here. So it does feel like a time where things have gone backwards, but, but those times do occur throughout history and people always come to the fore. You have to. Okay, thanks very much, Dave. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Yeah, it's, it's just so so sad what what's happened there and, and that it did come to that and we couldn't stop it. Um, it was funny, we, we both went up with the same motivations to paint no war, um, but also Will was much more of an optimist than I and 
he thought people power was going to work if we all marched in our millions and did that and I sort of went up there with a bit more of a cynical view wanting to stick my middle finger at the Howard government but uh, you know from I'm, I'm glad that image stated the feelings of the vast majority of the Australian people Alright, thanks very much Dave No worries that is Dave Burgess there talking about uh, his resistance to the Iraq war 20 years ago this week, planning no war on the Opera House. There was incredible resistance. It wasn't enough ultimately, and the Iraq war was a shocking waste of life and money and um, conscience, you know. So many people, the things that were done there were terrible over the next um, decade and the decades since as well as there's been continuing conflict there it's up to us are we going to be able to try to stop another one there's a lot of talk about war at the moment with AUKUS and um tough talk against china and all kinds of things and um it's worth reflecting on the iraq war both the resistance to it and the lessons learned from that and the war and what happens when you go into a conflict um like that there is a rally a peace palm sunday rally for peace and refugees next sunday april 2nd 1 p.m at king george square get along there and maybe we can start the process of talking about how we're going to stop the next war